I feel so lucky to be able to use the experience and skills that I have to represent people who have been hurt. This is Advocate Craft, the podcast that talks about the stuff they don't teach in law school. You know, you can only take on so much before you start to have, you know, what we often call compassion fatigue, and it really sneaks up on you. We actually want to be there for our clients 100%. We have to take care of ourselves first. If we're not in a healthy place, then how are we going to help them get to a point where they're able to move forward in a healthy way? Hey, everybody, I'm Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in to the podcast. I am a litigation consultant. It means I've had the privilege to work with a lot of fantastic lawyers, primarily civil plaintiffs lawyers and criminal defense lawyers. And in the time that I've been working with so many attorneys that I admire, I've learned that there are a whole host of skills and disciplines that contribute to the craft of practicing law, that is the craft of being an advocate that is not taught in law school. Lawyers are left to learn these things and work out themselves how to be a better advocate for their clients. I think it helps when lawyers across disciplines get together, form masterminds, uh, and talk about these skills. Legal seminars is a great place to do that. Uh, But, you know, there's a room for an ongoing conversation among professionals. And that's what I hope that this podcast, Advocate Craft, will become. Today, we're going to be talking to attorney Karen Barth Menzies. She is an attorney who has spent her entire career as a civil plaintiff's lawyer. In the time that she's been practicing, she's represented a lot of issues that impacted women and children, and she's gotten involved in a lot of large mass torts, some of them you'd know about. And in that process, she became aware of issues around sexual abuse and sexual assault. And as she got more involved with those cases, she recognized that the the kind of practice and interaction with the clients that is effective and really necessary in a mass tort environment doesn't work when you've got very specific and personal trauma, the kind of trauma that's associated with sexual assault survivors. She became very interested in that practice. She uh, started her own firm specifically so that she could approach helping and being an advocate for survivors on her own terms in the way that she felt was necessary. Today, I have a chance to talk to her about the specific, unique skills that you need to be a trauma-informed advocate for sexual assault survivors. And then at the end of our conversation, something that's really important to me, we're going to talk a little bit about secondary trauma, about what Karen described in our intro is compassion fatigue and how it's important for a lawyer or uh, another advocate that deals closely with survivors of trauma to deal with that secondary trauma themselves in a healthy way and to be proactive about recognizing that secondary trauma and compassion fatigue are real and that if you don't address them early, they're going to come back to haunt you. 
Uh, so here's my conversation with Karen Barth Menzies. Thanks for listening in. So in, in our business, often we meet people during the worst times of their lives. Have you found that to be true? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have people, you know, people meet you and they're like, oh, you're a lawyer and maybe you could be my lawyer someday. And I'm like, that's the last thing you want. Does that mean you're, you've been hurt? <laughs> yeah. Not because I'm not a good lawyer. Yeah, I was, I was getting my haircut yesterday, as a matter of fact, and my barber, he doesn't really know what I do, but uh, he made some reference to something that happened in the news that was a little heinous, and I, I apologized for bringing that up, and I said, oh, don't worry, my whole business is rape, murder, death, and mayhem. And uh, <laughs> he said, oh, that must be a lot. And I thought, you know, sometimes... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amputations and, and crushing deaths and, and burns and and sexual assault. And that's one of the things that you're doing a lot of work on right now. Tell me a little bit about how you got into working with survivors of sexual assault. It, it takes a special person to be able to, to work with a trauma survivor, especially like a sexual assault trauma survivor. Yeah, I consider myself, I've always considered myself lucky uh, because I um, believe in what I do. It's one thing to love what you do, but to truly believe at its core in what you're doing um, is helping other people. And, you know, to, I'll tell you that as hard as it is, and it can be super intense and taxing emotionally, um, especially, what keeps you going, what revives your energy um, is that oftentimes on a daily basis, you're reminded by why you're doing this. You know, a lot of people can't say that about their work and their jobs. I consider myself lucky because I work with and represent people who I find truly inspiring. And so while with that comes sadness, um, tragedy, harm, a hurt person, um, those people need help. And if I can provide that help and give them the kind of support that they need, and that's actually what I, I'm doing as my work, I feel really lucky. And when I get tired and overwhelmed and just, it can be exhausting. And the thing that lifts me up the most might be even just a text from a client telling me how grateful they are that I listened to what they said or how that helped them make a decision to move forward and confront for themselves the trauma and the tragedy that they've been through. And these incremental steps of healing, I absorb those in a way that I find motivating and inspiring And I guess that's my way of kind of trying to manage the intensity and the sadness of what we deal with every day is to use it to keep me going and to remind me why I'm doing it and to be inspiring. How did you end up getting into working with sexual assault survivors? I've always been interested in uh, women's health issues and in particular I've always, my whole career, had the desire to work for the underdog, so to speak, the 
the um, person who either doesn't have a voice or doesn't have the financial means to uh, take on um, justice attempts. Um, but I'll be honest with you, Sean, it's um, for me, it has a lot to do with personal experience in my own career and in my own, in my own life. I haven't talked too much about it, but it, that's the honest answer. The honest answer is that um, I've, you know, had my own personal experiences um, in a very um, male-dominated industry, and um, I get really tired uh, about and, and living and witnessing the effects of that. And I got to a point in my career where I felt like I was at a point where I could do something about it. And this is really what got me into the world of the sexual assault cases. And you'd spent a good portion of your career doing mass tort cases where you're dealing with hundreds or thousands of plaintiffs in a single action. But with uh, sexual assault cases, each one is a much more individual-based pursuit for justice, right? Each harm is very specific and individual and there's personalities involved, sometimes famous personalities involved. And the way you work with a client in a mass tort setting, and then when you work with an individual client on something that's so deeply personal and specific and individual, those are two completely different ways of going about things, isn't it? It's a big shift. And, you know, the concept, like I started, the I've always been interested in representing the individual, you know, not a corporation, not a giant powerful organization, or even a powerful individual that has plenty of resources to get the best legal team possible. I've always been focused on the underdog, and uh, my practice has been focused on plaintiffs' work in the mass tort setting. After having done that for 25 plus years, I began to realize that I was having fewer and fewer interactions with the individual plaintiffs that I was representing, um, unless we were heading towards trial. So I might meet less than 10 of the women I re represent, for example. And when I, on the big picture, represent hundreds. Um, and so when I started getting involved in sexual assault cases, it was kind of like a reset and reawakening, a reconnection, um, on why I became a lawyer, because I was able to interact and connect and grow and develop with my client through the course of the litigation. And that is something I didn't have for years. And so when I started down this path and, and that you know became more and more apparent to me because that's the reality of representing somebody who has suffered such a, a personal traumatic experience and goes through all the emotions that you have with that, which include, you know, shame and self-blame and fear, intimidation, denial. Um, going through that with the client and helping them come not only through, but out of those feelings is a very deep connection with my client. And I, um, that's why there's no going back for me. I really have been inspired by my clients and I enjoy this work. And you started your own firm so you could do it the way you felt it needed to be done. 
I did. I, um, I started my own firm so that I could do it the way I feel it needed to be done because I had unfortunately been involved with and worked in settings where I didn't feel like we were necessarily as focused on the client or hearing the client in the way that they needed to be heard. I also have to say that, you know, there was, I think there's a lot of power in female representation of female sexual assault survivors, Um, especially because most women have experienced at least on some level, a version of harassment, discrimination, or even abuse. And so there's that you resonate with your clients and have a viewpoint different than usually different than uh, a man representing the clients. And separate from that, Sean, I'd say for too long in this industry and many industries, um, and whether it's media or commercials or even the pharmaceutical companies, um, because we're still coming to a point where we're actually hearing more from women and women's viewpoints. You see it in Hollywood, for example, there's a huge difference when the writer or the director or the producer is female versus male. Nothing wrong with that. It's just a perspective that we don't get very often in music. You know, there's so many sexual assault survivors who are women in the music world and have had to get out of it. And so that affects all of us in a way where the music that we hear, we just don't hear it from the mind experience and voices of women. And it's same in the legal industry. You know, we would been so dominated, especially on the plaintiff side by male um, led firms who are excellent, successful trial lawyers, but they don't have the same perspective experiences and viewpoints that women do. And so we needed more of that. And that's why I wanted to have a female-led firm and do what I can do to get the voices out there, um, get the women's voices heard through female-led representation. So some lawyers try to keep a little bit of a arm's length away from their clients' personal lives. And uh, some, I know, get right up in there and and help them through some of the trauma. Some friends of mine who are lawyers will get crisis calls in the middle of the night and show up at their house to make sure that they have what they need, especially if there's uh, thoughts of suicide or things. And it's, it's difficult when you're dealing with somebody who's going through that trauma and, and on such a personal way to establish the personal and the professional relationship. So I'm curious when you deal with survivors of assault, uh, who are putting their lives in your hands, really, I mean, they, they, this is part of their process to heal and they're still going through this trauma. How do you, how do you balance the personal and the professional? And is there even a line between that at this point? You always hear that statement, you know, meet the person where they are. I think about that a lot because it changes for the client throughout the process. Um, But for sexual assault survivors, generally, by the nature of the injury, by the nature of the trauma, they're going, you're going to need to spend more time than you normally would with other types of clients to establish trust. 
Um, you always need to establish trust with the client. We're lawyers. They're going to be like, okay, well, that's a lawyer. Um, but with sexual assault survivors, they have an inherent distrust of people because that's part of what was taken away from them by the abuse, their control and their ability to trust people. And so you have to establish that at first. But even that establishing trust with the client really depends on the on the person themselves. So the way I navigate the um, striking the right balance between having a, a, a line between the personal and the professional is to really listen to what my clients and try are saying, watch how they react to things, um, get to know them. Like, I don't know how you can represent a sexual assault survivor without actually getting to know the person. And so for some people, they're going to need more attention, more personal connection, you know? And so for those survivors to help them establish trust and get to a place where they can start confronting what's happened to them, they may be at the point in their healing process where they haven't even started to think about what happened to them. I think each client is going to be different on how much time they're going to need to get to a point where they're ready to approach this litigation process. And there's a lot of lawyers who will say, you know, you need to find out from the client within, you know, an one hour long conversation or even a 20 minute conversation. Is this a case? And, and I don't think that works in these cases for some clients it's possible, but not, for most or any that I've actually worked with. Well, what I've learned in working with you is that there are predators have patterns and they have a specific way that they groom the, the people that they're assaulting. And you know that from the work that you've done, not every survivor knows what it means to be groomed or recognizes that they were groomed and I know that you had, there's a documented sort of pathway of, of emotions that survivors have uh, and that healing process. It's not the same for everyone, but there are common things in different survivors' path towards healing. And because you can recognize that when you have time with a new client, first you have to recognize where are they on that pathway. And, and that I know that's got to take time. It takes a great amount of time for them to begin to um, see the patterns because they always be, start out in a place where they feel like they're alone and the only one. And um, and I'll have conversations and I'll say, I'll start to plant seeds. I'll start to say, you know, this is common. That may fall on deaf ears, the first three, four, ten conversations. But somewhere down the road, as they develop and grow in this process, then I start hearing them in their descriptions to me on how they're feeling, reflecting stuff that I've talked to them about previously. So if I give you an example, if I have a client who has no idea that they were groomed even, and they're like, well, no, this was a relationship. It was, you know, and they're trying to get around the understanding of what consent means and start to get away. When we show them the patterns of what the predators do in the context of grooming and abuse, 
and you and they also can get it from other survivors too once they start seeing that pattern then they're able to start looking at themselves more accurately and what happened to them and that's a huge step in their development towards healing because that allows them to to see it in a different way and to begin to the process of realizing the control was taken away from them and they, um, you know, stop blaming themselves. And that's a hard thing to do. And it takes time. And, and there's something you said there too, like some lawyers say you need to know within 20 minutes or an hour, or whatever the consult is, whether there's a case there. And that's just not feasible for the sexual assault cases because they're complicated and they're difficult. And the facts that you need to know don't necessarily come out in one conversation. And and I've talked to you about this before. You don't necessarily assume that every case needs to be litigated and that there might be a different pathway for for some people to pursue justice. And you're open to that. The way I go about trying to help a survivor is one of the options is litigation, potentially. Sometimes it's not even an option. But if you treat the person as a whole person and you spend the time to understand and listen to where they're at and what might be meaningful for them in their journey towards some form of justice and healing and getting past the trauma, it may not be a lawsuit. That might be something they're not ready for or something they ever want. And I get upset when I hear constantly people accusing survivors who bring a lawsuit as just wanting a quick payday or they want their own 15 minutes of fame. That's never been my experience with any survivor. The survivors just want accountability and, and, and they have a, a profound capacity. I know this sounds like generalizing, but for me, it's 100% true. Survivors have a profound capacity for forgiveness. It surprises me because of what's happened to them. I mean, you look at what the horrible experience they've been through, and yet still somewhere they have the you know wherewithal to recognize, I don't want to destroy this person. The survivors, they are good people. They don't want to go destroy another life. They just want to make sure that another woman's life isn't destroyed in the same manner. So if they can have accountability, if their predator can actually acknowledge what they did was wrong, then they have hope it won't happen again. And you're candid with the survivors you work with that litigation can be in itself traumatic and it can come compound the trauma. And if they're not ready for that, or that's not the path they want to take, that there's nothing wrong with that. There's other ways to, uh, to heal. Right. But, the language of the civil justice system is money. And you've told me before that that is never the issue with the survivors you work with. I'd love, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. I think that uh, it's very much a, a very individualized and slow process um, because the nature of trauma and the nature of sexual assault, it causes the survivor to you know question what she did and, causes the survivor to, to blame herself. Um, that's in large part, not only because of personal feelings you have of what I could have done differently, but also 
societal attitude and pressure that we have. Um, it's the only crime uh, that you report where people start questioning you. You know, if you're reporting a, a robbery or a carjacking, you know, people aren't going like, wait a minute, what were you yeah, doing? What did you do to right. invite that robbery or carjacking? Yeah, right. yeah. So, you know, even just the act of reporting this crime um, and, and leading up to it are all those questions where survivors, you know, ask what they did, why they, what, what, why them and why, what they did to cause it. And it takes a really long time for a survivor, especially one who's been groomed over time, um, to be, come to realize that, you know, it really wasn't her fault. And a lot of times that only happens over time as well. Like they start to something, something will be done or said that gets them to start to see, wait a minute, maybe this wasn't my fault. And far and away, the most common realization comes to survivors when they hear about the pattern and behavior that predators take in grooming and assaulting survivors. And when they hear, the survivor hears that this happened to other women, um, it's kind of that bittersweet. It's on the one hand, it, it's the start of the survivor realizing this really wasn't their fault. This isn't something they did. This was something that was done to them. The control was taken away. Their control was taken away by the predator. And then immediately, and in, 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 in every survivor ever spoken with, the motivation to speak out, to use their voice is a process of understanding and realizing, wait a minute, this wasn't me. This was done to me. And I don't want the predator to do this again. I don't want them to do it to another person. So survivors get accused all the time of wanting their 15 minutes of fame if it's a, a celebrity or, or, you know, wanting some sort of money or revenge even. And that's never the case. That's not what motivates survivors to, to speak out. And people take a look at the Me Too movement and they're like, oh, these women are all getting back at these men and they're canceling all these, you know, famous people and, and, you know, destroying their careers and, it was never, it never about that. The Me Too movement is exactly what I'm describing in terms of a survivor joining her voice with other survivors so that they all understand two things. One, you're not alone. This wasn't you. This was the predator. And two, if we speak out, then maybe that predator will be stopped and can't do it again. And that is always the motivation. I think you know, we do struggle sometimes with our clients to, to, you know, it's the only case I've ever worked on where I have to apologize to the client that the only form of remedy I can get them is money. And there's a lot of survivors who aren't interested in that. And, and that's a struggle for them. They feel like it's, you know, taking money for, um, I don't know, they feel guilty in a way, like blood money or like, I can't do that. I don't want to profit financially off of, of this crime that was committed on me. And, you know, we try to work with the survivors so they understand. But that crime that was committed had horrible consequences and ramifications to you and, in, and into your life. Yeah. One thing you told me earlier is that survivors are remarkably willing to forgive if they can receive the acknowledgement that the harm was done. 
right? Yes. <clears throat> and one thing I think about a lot in civil plaintiff's work is that uh, unless the harm is that somebody lost a lot of money, you can't fix that with a lot of money, right? And so if you've lost your leg or you've been burned over your body or you lost your spouse, no money can replace that. And that's yeah. not actually the purpose of the money. In my opinion, the way I frame it in the work that I do is that the money is an acknowledgement that the defendant owes a debt that is unpayable. The money buys uh, forgiveness. Debts, not all debts can be paid off, but some debts can be forgiven. And, and that's the language of the court. And I feel like what the survivors are looking for is accountability. Uh, and if they can take responsibility and make the sacrifice, then they're worthy of forgiveness. And I, and I, I love that you bring that up, that we talked earlier, too, about how they're not looking to destroy this person. They're just looking for a reconciliation. <clears throat> and, and oftentimes, we've get to the point where there are settlements with folks who do the right thing and do acknowledge the harm. And if it's the survivor who decides that's acceptable to her, there's some justice there, right? Oh, exactly. I mean, that is, it's amazing to me how survivors consistently um, are looking, like, as you said, they're looking for accountability because they don't want it to happen to the next person. And they, and, you know, we all feel and believe that if somebody could admit they did something wrong, and recognize they did something wrong, they're going to be less likely to do it in the future. And that's the hope that we strive for, because we don't want that predator to get away with assaulting another woman. And I like what you said on the, you know, the monetary compensation, you know, in any, any harmed plaintiff, you know, somebody who's lost a leg or lost a family member, you know, they will always would rather have the leg mm -hmm. back or, or, the family member back and we can't do that, but you know, what can we do and acknowledge and it, and a lot of times um, the women I've worked with have attempted before even taking any kind of legal action have tried to confront and face their abuser and, and get that accountability and just, you know, acknowledge what you did to me was wrong and that it hurt me. Mm hmm you know, you can just acknowledge that and the capacity that the survivors have to forgive somebody who abused them, mm -hmm. even in the face of what had happened, is always the case. But the problem, you know, in our society, you know, it's just deny, deny, deny. But yeah, there's with survivors I've worked with, there's always room for that forgiveness. And it's and it's um, not just deny, it's it's gaslighting into into yeah. thinking that it was you, not me. It's powerful and, yeah, it, and horrifying. Yeah, the predators definitely take advantage of the ability to gaslight these survivors because they're already feeling embarrassment, shame, questioning themselves um, because they don't realize they were being groomed at the time and, and where the abuse was leading until later. And, you know, they just continued that sort of that kind of mind game that the abuser takes with the survivor it's an ex perpetuates. extension of the, of the assault really. Of yeah. The they continue. To, yeah, they really do. And survivors are susceptible to that. Well, the one key thing I wanted to ask you and talk to you about before we wrap up 
is, you know, so at the very beginning of our conversation, we joked about how, you know, some people say, oh, you're, you're a great lawyer. I'd love for you to be my lawyer one day. And you're like, no, I hope I'm never your lawyer because that means something terrible, terrible has happened to you. And, and we talked about how we meet people during the the worst times in their lives when they're experiencing uh, the depth of the wake of this trauma. And we take on a lot of that pain when we work with them as advocates. And that can be difficult to deal with sometimes. And I was curious how, you know, how do you process that trauma? You introduced me to a term called secondary trauma, which I think is very real. I've experienced it. And so tell me a little bit about, about that. I've dedicated my career to represent people who have been hurt. And, um, I, and I feel so lucky to be able to use the experience and skills that I have to represent people who have been hurt. Uh, but at the same time, that means you're constantly dealing with people who have been hurt mm-hmm. and, you can't help, but you know I do it. I'm lucky because I, I get to believe in what I do wholeheartedly, and and you know if I'm going to do anything with my my career as a lawyer, is if I can help people who've been hurt, then I'm really lucky because I love what I do and I believe in what I do. But because I believe in it so strongly, there's no way to avoid. You know, I'm just an empathetic person, um, and I'm inspired by my clients. And I'm touched by my clients, and I I never want to lose that um, that real connection with them because I think that's how I can best represent them. I can really listen and try my best to understand as much as possible the pain and harm that they've suffered, so that I can help bring forward in court uh, and 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 find them some justice in a legal way to address those harms. But that takes its toll. And I, I think there's more recognition now um, than there has been in the past. But there's really, it's unavoidable. Uh, you, you know, you can only take on so much where, where, uh, before you start to have, you know, what we often call compassion fatigue. Um, and it really sneaks up. That's, it really sneaks up on you. And, you know, I've, I was presenting on this with a group of therapists and other lawyers who were dealing with this. And we tried to express to the group, you know, if we can all acknowledge that everyone involved is going to have some compassion fatigue, is going to like run out of space at some point in time because it's just the nature of what we do, then we can avoid times where it surprises us. Because if it surprises you, if it comes out of nowhere, you might be shut down for a week or two or even more at, at the worst possible time. You know, there's never a good time. But if you can anticipate it and honor it and understand that it's okay for you to step away and take a break and, and find out and be prepared with tools ahead of time on how to try to minimize um, the, the chance that, that you really have, will have kind of a breakdown as a result, then it can, you know, it can be treated and avoided and therapists understand it really well. This is like a common, like, you know, duh. Um, of course this happens. Um, we all have our outlets, you know, that we use to manage stress in the work day or overload mm-hmm. that you have in your life, overwhelm and overload, whether it's all the responsibilities you have with your family or your workload. And, 
it's the same kind of idea. You, if you don't take a vacation, if you don't get outside or do that hike or play some music or whatever it is that you use to help uh, ground yourself and, and step away for a minute and pause and take a breath, uh, that's the best way to protect yourself and stay healthy so that you can be fully there when you are in that position again, listening to and hearing what your clients are saying. And I actually, I, you know, I talk with this with my, I talk about this with my clients as well, because the survivors really, you know, they do, once they start speaking out, they start learning about other survivors and they start sharing stories. And the person who speaks out, now they start hearing from all these other, for example, all these other women that this has happened to as well. And it, and it can be completely overwhelming and validating and empowering, but it can also be exhausting because you're also taking on and listening to more and more tra trauma, which is very difficult to hear. So I always give permission to the extent they, they um, listen to me. I always say to the survivors, there, there will be a time that you need to step away and say, I can't listen to any more stories. I can't hear another, I've got to take a break. I need to get my life going forward again. And that's okay. And that's necessary. Uh, as part of the healing process as well. I had a conversation with a friend of mine, Stephen Lawrence, who's a, a plaintiff's lawyer who deals with catastrophic injuries and, like you, has a real close connection with his clients and thinks that's the only way he can represent them well is to have that connection. But he has felt that passion fatigue as well. And looking back on this long case that he's had with multiple plaintiffs over years he told me that he realized he should have taken a couple days off you know even four days just to get away somewhere and clear his head would have kept him from struggling more with it later and i think you're right i know a number of lawyers who if they don't address that as it happens will have that crash where they, they're out of commission for longer than maybe they thought. And often during times where there's other crises to deal with. And so it, it, what I hear you saying is you've got to consciously recognize that it's real and that we're ripe for it, especially if we are empathetic advocates and that you've got to, I think really what it is, is you have to give yourself permission to take that time that seems selfish if it's hiking or sailing or yeah. going to visit a friend or, or whatever it is that's going to allow you to clear your mind and reset and you owe it to yourself yeah. and to your clients, right? That's exactly the way I was going to say where we would normally think, well, you know, I'm, I'm falling down on my duties. I have so much work to do. I owe, you know, I, I, I want to be there for these clients every possible moment. And, and it's selfish for me to like, go do something fun for myself. And, and you're exactly right. Like if we actually want to be there for our clients a hundred percent and really give them the best possible representation that we can, we got to take care, take care of ourselves first. If we're not in a healthy place, then how are we going to help them get to a point that's where they're help, uh, you know, able to move forward in a healthy way. All right, everybody, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. That was our first podcast, our inaugural episode. Next time, we're going to be talking to Stephen Lawrence. You heard us reference him 
in today's podcast. Stephen's another lawyer who deals with plaintiffs who have suffered traumatic, life-altering injuries. Uh, he also takes it very personally. We're going to talk a little bit to him about his techniques for dealing with secondary trauma. Until then, everybody, uh, remember that all it takes for evil to dominate the earth is for the good to stand by and do nothing. I think lawyers are the light in the darkness. Be the light and keep fighting. I think there's a lot of power in female representation of female sexual assault survivors.